Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good morning, everybody, and welcome. Welcome. It's good to see everyone, and I'm really glad that I got to see some of you uh, during this week. Uh, somebody was asking me last night, you know, what was, the, what was the best thing that happened this week? And I said, I know this is really cheesy, but honestly, like, I love my job. Um, I love what I get to do here. I feel fully realized in it, and I feel capable of it, which is kind of nice, at least sometimes, you know? Um, so for those of you who were here last week, uh, what we affectionately call Washer Sunday, which is where we come in and we ask the Lord for an individual word that will kind of guide our journey for the year. And um, we hammer that word into a little metal washer. So there's still a station back there if anybody still needs to do that. Um, but it really kind of sets the trajectory for a lot of us as individuals to be able to uh, just hone in on what the Lord's doing and then to, to add on to that some spiritual practices or disciplines that will help us on the journey. And so this week I was able to sit with so many of you to hear your process, to kind of affirm the ways that you are hearing the voice of God, because I know that that can be really intimidating for a lot of people, um, and then to talk about some of the different disciplines and practices that we have within the Christian household that help us to, uh, to keep ourselves from being distracted, to stay on that narrow path with God. Um, and it's you know, it's a joy for me to be able to do that, to sit with you, to pray, to help you develop those kinds of plans. And so I want to encourage you, if you weren't yet able to do that, please email me, ryan at citybeautiful.ch. Reach out to me via Slack. Don't text me if you have my number. That's for memes and personal things. If it's going to be spiritual direction, make it professional. Um, but I love sitting with you, and you're not inconveniencing me. It's my joy, and I really want um, us to continue to develop that kind of relationship in 2021. So today, um, if last week we're looking at like the individual vision for each of us for the year, today we're looking at um, the, uh, the vision for our whole community. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to kind of talk, like, unveil the big vision for our church for 2021, and then break down a few pieces of it that'll maybe give us some idea of where we're headed. And I think a lot of times, I'd say actually, most of the time that God gives us vision, whether it's for us individually, for us as a community, um, it's the beginning of a conversation and not the end of a conversation, right? So a lot of times we come to God because we need an answer, and it needs to be definitive. Um, and the problem with that a lot of times is it, it, it betrays the fact that we only come to God when we need something. Like we're kind of doing our own thing. We have our own story that we're living out. And then we hit a wall. And then we come to God to give us an answer so that we can continue to do our own thing. But if we kind of pivot to say, no, we're being guided by God proactively. A lot of times God speaks things um, that lead us places that we don't really know what it's going to look like. We don't really know what to expect. We see this through the story of Israel as God rescues them out of oppression in Egypt and he's taking them to the promised land. They're in this, this period of 40 years where they're in the desert, where they're learning how to rely on God and their questions of God are so often the questions that you and I ask. Well, what can I expect? What's it going to look like? What are the parameters? Like, give me all the data so that then I can trust you, right? How many of us, that's our relationship with God. Like, give me all of the parameters. Give me all the expectations. Give me the rules and the regulations. And then I can know I can trust you. And then we're going somewhere. 
But Yahweh's response to Israel so often in the desert is, just be with me. Just trust me. Because what God is saying to Israel in that moment is what he's saying to all of us. It doesn't really matter what the promised land we think looks like. If we're not with God, it's just a piece of dirt in the desert. You see? So the vision that God gives you individually, the word he speaks to you, or the word he speaks to our whole community, if we don't learn how to rely on God to lead us there from moment to moment, wherever we end up, it's not actually the promised land because we've lowered our sights to make it about us and what we're capable of and the, and the, the rules and the regulations that we've devised in order to craft our world. So I want to talk a little bit about how we do vision um, and then we'll unveil our vision for this year. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here, that you're with us, that you are for us, you are not against us. And Lord, before we go any farther today, we want to sit in quiet submission to that beautiful truth, that this is not about us manufacturing something, this is not us taking life by the horns and trying to make it what we want it to be. This is not the pressure that we heap upon ourselves to perform, to strive, to succeed. All of this, Lord, is about learning how to be present to you and to allow you to be present to us, to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. And Lord, we don't want to go any farther into speaking of vision and the future and the plans without acknowledging first that you are with us. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So a little bit about how we do vision here. For the past several years, um, we've been kind of figuring out what does this look like? And a lot of times in modern church, um, it operates the same way that Moses did when he led Israel, which was, you know, the, my, one of my favorite verses in Exodus, it says, that, and I'm going to quote in the, the King James, the only true version of the Bible, of course. It says, <laughs> boo, it says, and the people stood afar off and Moses entered into the thick darkness where God was. I love that verse. I think it's Exodus 19. And what's happening there is that Israel is going, whoa, whatever, whoever that is on top of the mountain, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not really confident in myself to engage with that. So we need someone to go on our behalf to climb the mountain, to get the vision of God, to bring it down on stone tablets, and then just tell us what to do. And that's a very Old Testament model of how things worked. And God was accommodating of that, of course, and he raised up leaders throughout Israel's history to be that, that mediator, that intercessory. But with the advent, the coming of Jesus, and specifically the spirit of Jesus being a blessed, blessing his people, that all of us are connected to the Holy Spirit, that's not how we see vision anymore. As New Testament, New Covenant people, um, we are all capable of hearing the voice of God. And so it's, I do not believe it is my role as the Moses for me to go up on the mountain, find the vision, bring it back down, and then just tell all of you to obey it. At least I hope we'll never get to that point. We'll see. If you guys, you know, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll put it to a vote or something. Um, but I, th I do believe the new covenant vision is where the people of God come together. They, they create a safe 
place for us to practice listening to the voice of God. And then we kind of speak into the center of the thing. And my job really then is to synthesize all of that information of what we feel like we're hearing from the Lord and to try to find the common threads that would, that would point to what God is speaking in that. And so the past several years, this is what we've done. In, in the beginning of October, our leaders and our elders come together in this space. We worship. I kind of give two kind of big picture questions. I send everybody off for about 30, 40 minutes just to pray and reflect. We bring it together, and then we just kind of open it up and go, okay, what did you hear? What did you see? And someone will say, well, you know, I kind of heard this word. And someone will say, oh, that actually reminds me of this scripture that I was reminded of. And somebody will go, oh, I had this picture and I didn't really know what it means. And we just kind of see in, in, the, in our midst the Holy Spirit weaving this thread of these common themes. And then I take all of that and I pray over it for a couple of weeks and I kind of find the language that helps to, to boil that down. What is the essence of where God wants to lead us in 2021? And so we did that this year. Um, and it was, a, it was a beautiful time. It was that first weekend in October. And uh, the questions I ask is, what is God revealing now within the church, within our local expression of the church as City Beautiful, within our city, within our nation, and around the world? And then the second question was about God's priorities and where, what do we need to let go of and what do we need to take up in order to prioritize the things that God speaks? And um, it was fascinating. There was a couple major themes of really uh, that 2020 shook the church, and it shook out a lot of where we place our confidence, where, you know, in quote-unquote normal time, normal space, we had this illusion that we're under control and we're doing everything just fine, and then all of these crises started to boil up, and the church had to question, where do we actually place our confidence? Where, where do our priorities lie? And here's a couple of the things that your leaders on your behalf uh, heard from the Lord. Just a few of them, and there was a much bigger list. Um, number one, when the music fades, smoke clears, the building is empty. It was about relationship with God all along. So those ideas of all of the extra stuff being stripped away from the church. Another one, a refining fire, an awakening, an alignment with God's heart. Another, that self-reliance and self-actualization have been seated on the throne but now there is an invitation to sit at the feet of Jesus. Another one, calling us into question, where do our true allegiances lie? And another one, that what has been revealed is false, disingenuous Christianity, but there are people who have a true heart for God that are coming forward. And so I just sat with all of this for a couple of weeks and asked, asked the Lord to kind of give me, give me a, a kind of a word package that would at least give us some trajectory for 2021. And this um, this is really what I feel like the Lord is saying for 2021. This is our vision for this year, all our allegiance to King Jesus, okay? So get that tattooed on your forearm, <laughs> memorize that. This is where we're headed this year. And like I said, it's the beginning of a conversation, it's not the end. So when you say to me, well, what's it going to look like? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. I have some ideas, and that's what I want to talk about today. But we are, we are going to be following the Lord into this phrase, all our allegiance to King Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to actually kind of reverse engineer this, talk about, first of all, what are we talking about when we talk about King Jesus? And then what do, what do we mean when we say allegiance? <clears throat> and the passages that I'm going to be using today are both from the book of Colossians, um, which is a, a gorgeous little book that Paul wrote that kind of gives a really good summary. Like uh, the first part of Colossians is a very big picture kind of theological 
portrait of Jesus. And then the second half is kind of the, so what? Here's the practical living out of it. And in the first chapter of Colossians, there's this little, there's a song, this Christ hymn. And we don't know if like Paul wrote this or if this was a song that was kind of circulating uh, in the time, as maybe it's the first century equivalent of Awesome God or uh, Shout to the North or whatever. Uh, some of you 90s folks, you'll remember some of those great uh, anthems that we had. So we don't know if Paul wrote this or if he's borrowing it. It was just kind of circulating through the churches. But he, he writes it into the beginning of this book because there's something that, that poetry, that music conveys that's a little bit deeper than just data. So as I'm reading this, I want you to think of it as a poem, an homage to how the early Christians saw Jesus. So this is Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. It's called the supremacy of the Son of God. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." There's a couple passages, I think, that sum up so beautifully, at at the least are a good starting point for understanding the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to understand what is it that God is doing through Jesus and by extension his church. I'd say uh, Philippians chapter 2 is one of those things, Colossians chapter 1, I'd say the story of the prodigal son. Like these, These are like big, big, big phrases that we read the rest of Scripture through. And so the radical claim of the early Christians through this Christ hymn is that Jesus is the center of the universe. They would almost talk about Jesus as like, he's like the glue that's holding the whole thing together. In the writings of John, he talks about Jesus being the word of God uh, or the logos. And logos is this idea of like, it's the animating force that kind of suspends the whole universe and holds it together. And what the early Christians believed quite literally was if it were not for Jesus Christ, every atom and molecule in the universe would just fall apart. Now, see, a lot of times what you and I believe because of the culture that we've been raised in is the universe kind of exists and it's just doing its thing. And then we do the rain dance and we pray. And every time, every once in a while, God shows up in our universe. I mean, how many times do we talk about that? Man, God showed up today. Didn't he just show up? But I think contrary to that, the, the Christian ver- viewpoint is God is present in all of it. Jesus is the word of God, is holding the whole thing together. It was created through him. It is given its life force because of him. And if it were not for him present, it would all fall apart. So Jesus is the glue or the center of the universe. And this hymn kind of uses these different, this different language to articulate that. First of all, it talks about that the Son is the image of the invisible God, which is to say, do you want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. We talk about this a lot here. And we cannot, I do not believe that you can overemphasize this. There's some people that are very nervous that they think that when we elevate Jesus as the image of God in some way that like demotes the Bible or something, some weird stuff like that. But if it's, if you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus. If you cannot say it about Jesus, you cannot say it about God. Scripture submits to Jesus. Scripture is 
infallible in the idea that it points towards Jesus as the exact representation of his character. So we hold Jesus in very, very high regard as Christians, that he is the firstborn of all creation. So Jesus is the word, he is the, the best thing that God has ever had to say. It doesn't get any better than Jesus. There's not going to be a Jesus part two. You know what I mean? Like everything that God speaks is only a reflection of what he has already spoken in Jesus. But it's taken us at least 2,000 years to even figure out what that meant because it was so beautiful. It was so powerful. This poem also talks about Jesus being supreme or he is before all things. So when you think about um, all the power in the world and the kings and the rulers and the authorities and the presidents and the prime ministers and the whomevers, Jesus is above all of that. He's before of it. All of it lays at his feet. Jesus is not uh, subservient to any of the power structures of man. Okay? All of them submit to him. And they're for him, whether they realize it or not. And fun news fact, most of the leaders of the world don't know that. But that's why the church exists, because we're there to remind them. And one of the really neat things about this idea of he is before all things and in him all things hold together was that the church in Colossae was struggling with the same idea that we do in 21st century America is that there's the sacred world and then there's the secular world. We call this dualism for those of you who are keeping track at home. And the sacred world, this is the stuff that God cares about, that Jesus has an opinion about. And it's like kind of about your soul and maybe you get to go to heaven and maybe like 10% of your finances he cares about and like, are you reading enough of your Bible? Those are the things that God cares about. And then there's the secular world. And, you know, Jesus maybe has a couple opinions on what we think we might want to do in that, okay? Colossae, they exist in this very same realm. And we see it even in music, okay? So we've got, like, genres of music, right? We've got classical. We've got heavy metal. We've got post-rock. We've got, you know, uh, R&B, dance, or whatever. And then we've got Christian. And it was like, how is Christian a genre, You know what I mean? It sells well when we do it that way because it suckers all of us Christians into going, oh, Christian, let's go buy all the Christian music. And then we have no actual taste for music. That's a whole other thing we'll get on at some other point. (laughs) Some of it's very good, but Christian is not a genre. But it betrays this idea of like, oh yeah, there's the sacred realm and then there's the secular realm. And Paul is obliterating that with his hymn. He says, there's no such thing as sacred and secular. All of it is gathered up in Jesus. So it's all sacred. We just don't realize it yet. So part of what God is doing in the world is awakening us, opening our eyes to see the whole thing has been sacred this whole time. We just didn't know it. And then finally, he speaks of Jesus as the head of the body, the church. So Jesus is the leader of the church. He is over all of us. But not only that, he's also the DNA of the new humanity. So we look to Jesus to know what God really looks like, but we also look to Jesus to know, look, know who we are going to become because he's the firstborn from among the dead. That's speaking of his resurrection. That in his resurrection, Jesus is saying, this is what the full and whole and healthy humanity looks like. And so we begin to look at Jesus to know who it is that we are becoming through a process that we call sanctification or being made holy. And so this powerful hymn sits at the beginning of this book to kind of lay the template for everything else that we believe. Everything that you believe, every opinion you have, if you're a Christian, is theology. All of it. Everything you think about the world. 
Whatever you think about nuclear disarmament or how you spend your money or sexuality or who should be president or, you know, whatever it is, all of it's theology because everything you say is a belief about God, whether you realize it or not. And that's what Paul's trying to do here. So first we're going to talk about this idea of King Jesus, and then we're going to talk about the word allegiance. And so I thought this is really important when we're talking about King Jesus. Christ isn't Jesus's last name. It's his royal title. And this is what happens when you have a cultural Christianity, is that we use the language to say Jesus Christ, and when we're saying Jesus Christ, we're like, yeah, Mary and Joseph Christ? I don't know. That's kind of how we think about it. Um, And it's not Jesus' last name. It's a title that was bestowed upon him. Christ is the Greek uh, word, uh, and Messiah is the Hebrew word. And that word, it means the anointed one. And if you know the Old Testament, as you all should do, you know that the people that get anointed are the kings. They're the leaders. David was anointed, all these different kings. They were anointed to that position, that they are ruling on God's behalf. And so one of the things that we see people doing now, which I think is very helpful, because sometimes we need to refresh our language to keep it vital, is that when we see Jesus Christ, we think King Jesus, because he is the anointed one. And that's very strange for us in our modern culture, because, I mean, all y'all don't have a king or a queen. My mom and dad are here, and I'm here, and Jonathan again, Canada, hello. You've sort of got a queen, I guess. Um, if you've ever lived in a, you know, in, a, in a regent area that has a king or a queen, you would understand this a, a bit better. But, you know, here we, we like to vote for our leaders. And so we get to say, well, that person's not my leader. That person is my leader because I had a decision to make in it. But Jesus being your king, you don't get to decide whether or not he gets to be king. You didn't put it to a vote. The question is, are you going to submit to him or not? I think this is really important when we understand what do we mean when we talk about the gospel? A lot of times people ask me, if you could boil down the gospel to its core elements, what is it? And I point to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, first gospel, really great place to start. It says, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah slash Christ. End of story. That's the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is a proclamation, number one, that Jesus is Lord. And in the first century, when we say Jesus is Lord, what we're saying is, and Caesar is not. Because this was all language that was already used in the first century to talk about Caesar, to talk about King Herod or whomever it might be. There's this inherently political angle to that when we say Jesus is Lord. And it's a declaration that Jesus is now king over all, through all, and in all, followed by an invitation The invitation is not the gospel. The invitation is the result of the gospel. And in biblical language, it's repent and believe. The first sermon Jesus ever preaches, it's very good. It's very brief. He just says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which we say in our language would be change the way you think about everything because the new reality of God is so close that you can reach out and you can touch it. And so the gospel is a proclamation followed by that invitation. Jesus is Lord. Are you going to get on board with that or not? And this is so important in our modern era because I, I mean, and maybe I'm prophesying right now, I don't know. I believe that we're seeing the collapse of a certain type of Christianity in this country that has been very me-based gospel as opposed to King Jesus-based gospel. What do I mean by that? Is the primary question that people come to the gospel with, they come to Jesus with is, how do I get saved? 
That's the core question in so much of American Christianity. How do I get something out of this? How do I get saved? Whether it's I go to the afterlife or I live a fuller life today or the prosperity gospel where I get all the riches that I actually deserve and God's on my side. And so often that's what's happened in our consumeristic societies. We've turned the gospel into just another consumer scheme. So it's about me and Jesus serves my needs. He saves me. He does this thing for me. And then when he doesn't come through for me, I just go and find myself another Messiah, another king who will fulfill my needs. But we have to move away from a me-based understanding of the gospel, Jesus died for your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die, to a Christ-based gospel, which is I pledge allegiance to the king, and I'm willing to repent, to change my thinking in everything to understand that. And so we see, as, as Paul is continuing on his conversation about what this means, that Jesus is Lord, he is King Jesus, we come into Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 15, and here he's saying, what is that going to look like when we pledge allegiance to King Jesus, when we kind of turn over and recognize that he is Lord and Caesar is not? He begins to speak in this language that we see over and over again in his writings, uh, where he talks about the powers and the principalities, or the powers and the authorities. And this is an ongoing theme in Scripture, I think, is tremendously important for us to understand. So I'm going to read Colossians 2, 6 to 15, and we're just going to be listening for what is it that we're being saved from, that there's this big clash between light and dark, between King Jesus and the kingdoms of the world. What does that look like? And so this is uh, Colossians 2, 6 to 15. So then... Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so just as you received King Jesus, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So hold on to that language there. Hollow and deceptive philosophy, elemental spiritual forces. Put that in your back pocket. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, King Jesus, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Whenever you see circumcision, if you don't understand that, just think you've been marked out to now be part of God's family. That's what that means. Um, your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And this is key. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so when we say, what are these powers and principalities? What are these authorities? We see here what we call the unholy trinity. Dun, dun, dun. And the unholy trinity schemes against the holy trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we've got the flesh and the enemy and the world. And they're all kind of mentioned here, but throughout Paul's writings. So number one, we've got hollow philosophies, okay? Hollow and deceptive philosophy. What does that mean? That means the power structures of man when we think that we're in charge. 
When we try to order the world, when we try to fix the world, when we try to create order as human beings, what we tend to do is create philosophies and power structures that are very dissimilar to the way that the kingdom of God works. We call it empire. And these are ways of believing and ways of ordering the world that actually, in the long run, tend to make it a worse place. Because as human beings, we believe we are called to lead through strength. How do you fix the world? You bring a bigger stick. There's a philosophy there. There's a hollow philosophy in the way that human beings try to fix the world that is contrary to the kingdom of God, what we see in Jesus. Number two, Paul talks about flesh. Now, he's not talking about your, your, your skin and bone, okay? That's another kind of this dualistic understanding of the universe where it's like, oh, yeah, God cares about everything that's up in clouds and angel, angelic and all this matter, this stuff of life is bad. That's not what he's talking about. When he says flesh, sometimes it gets translated as sinful nature, but we could also say it's your ego. And that's the bit of you that puts yourself at the center of the universe, that everything exists for my benefit, for me to gobble up experiences and people and stimulus in order to build myself an identity. And that's where we allow our egos to run rampant. And he's saying, you've been delivered from that ego, that flesh, that sinful desire. And then finally, the enemy, the Satan, the accuser, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, that manipulates our egos, that manipulates the powers and the principalities, the ruling authorities of man, in order to corrupt those things to keep us away from God. So we have this unholy trinity at work. But what Paul is saying here is the central understanding to what happens here on the cross, the, the first thing that we should be saying as Christians is, through the cross, Jesus triumphs over all evil. Not by bringing a bigger stick to the fight, not just by fighting fire with fire, but actually taking into himself all the evil of the world, taking the worst that evil has to do with him, and then dying, putting it to death, and then being resurrected, coming back to new life. And so he's saying, we, in theology, we call this Christus Victor, or Christ Victorious. This is the central way that we should be understanding what God does through the cross, is that he defeats the powers of this world, but in the most unexpected ways. And so we are rescued from the powers and principalities of this world by our full-bodied allegiance to King Jesus. So we talked about King Jesus, and I want to talk about this word, allegiance. A lot of times in, in the modern church, when we're talking about faith, we go, what is faith? Well, faith is trust. And it's like, yeah, sort of. Sometimes when we say equate faith and trust, what we end up with is a very passive understanding of what faith really is. Because faith comes along and you're having a hard day or, or the, the world is going to hell in a handbasket and everything's crazy and someone says, relax, just have some faith, man. You know, it's kind of like the Matthew McConaughey version of the Bible. You know what I mean? Just like, hey, just chill out. Just have faith. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dunking on Matthew McConaughey. He's a close friend. You know, I don't want to go on there. But... Faith means, like, just be passive. Just avoid the difficulties of life and call that faith. But that's not what our ancestors were talking about when they were talking about faith. This word, pistis, in Greek, that's for faith, it's this active verb. 
It's this peace. It's like you've got something to do in this. You are called to co-conspire with God to see these things come true in your life. And so modern scholars are saying, instead of just saying trust, what if we say allegiance, which is a very, very big word. And I think it needs to be because the word allegiance, when we talk about every time we see the word faith, if we think allegiance, it's active. It's comprehensive. It asks everything of you. When we pledge allegiance, we're saying is everything I am is dedicated to you. It's not just about intellectual assent. It's not just about my heart. It's about my mind. It's about my soul. It's about my spirit. It's about my body. It's about my finances. It's about my activities in this world. Everything I am, I'm, you're gathering all of it up behind you, and I'm pledging allegiance to you. And again, allegiance is a political term. Did you know the gospel is political? Now, I'm not saying it's partisan, because that's just playing into the powers and the principalities of this world. But it is political in the sense that it it means we are literally aligning ourselves with Jesus as the one true king and everything we are. How we organize ourselves as human beings is determined by his kingship. It requires everything of us to say, will we bow down and serve the one true king? And so when we claim Jesus is king, we are leaving behind everything else that would claim us. And so this is what the powers and the principalities do, whether it's your own ego, your flesh, whether it's the power structures of man and these hollow philosophies that pervade even the church, and then when it's the enemy looking to corrupt all these things and to keep us away from relationship with God. We are being delivered from all of those things at once as we are staked, stake our claim to the kingdom of God. A while ago, a friend of mine um, who is uh, an agnostic said, we're talking about this idea of faith and how, do you, how come you know stuff and how do you know what's true and what's not true and all of this. And he'd been raised in an evangelical environment, which was very much like a me-based version of the gospel. Like I made this decision and I chose in and then I did the research and then I'm, I'm choosing out of Christianity. And uh, we were just talking about that because my, my upbringing was a little bit different. He said, well, how do you, why do you believe? Like, why do you have faith? And in the moment, I just said, because I've given myself over to it. And then an hour later, I actually texted him. I said, that's not, I, that's not quite right. I want to change that. I believe because I have been given over to it. You know, now I was blessed to be born into the church. It wasn't something that I chose. It was a gift that I received But I think just because that's my story doesn't mean that that's not also true how all of us receive faith. Because if we're honest, we pick kings and messiahs the same way that we pick a car. You just decide, what are my needs and what do I like and how long is my commute and is it important to have a cup holder or whatever? And then I just go out and I find the car that's custom built to me. And a lot of times that's how we choose Christ's. That's how we choose messiahs. That's how we choose the version of Jesus that we like because he meets our needs. Faith as allegiance means we have been given over to something, and we frequently bump up against that. I'm not saying that I have a very good faith. I'm frequently finding where my flesh or my belief in hollow philosophies of the world is in contention with what I honestly do perceive in King Jesus. But that becomes part of the process of faith, of working those things out. And I think this idea of faith has been distorted 
in our modern culture. I think the first place is where faith, the idea of faith, has been commodified by those who claim to be on God's side. Where, and again, in these hollow philosophies, powers and principalities, where human structures claim and say, believing in us and pledging allegiance to our team is basically the same thing as pledging allegiance to God, because we're on the right side and we use all the right language. This is why we see the endemic of Christian nationalism in our country, because it has been conflated that belief in the country and is basically the same thing as belief in God. How do I know this? Because I do the research that you don't have to. I want to show you, this is in the, in the U.S. Capitol building, up in the rotunda of the building. There's this really astounding fresco, and it's called the Apotheosis of Washington. The apothe- you say, what is apotheosis? And I'm glad you asked that question. Apotheosis is a word that means to be made godlike. Okay? So in 1865, the U.S. government hired an Italian painter who had worked for the Pope in Rome to come and to paint this uh, this this really huge fresco. And let's zoom in a little bit. I want to show you. And here's George Washington looking very Jesus-y, if we're going to be honest. I mean, I don't remember ever seeing a picture of George Washington where he's wearing a dress, but here he is. And he's got this dagger and he's got a very Jesus-y hand. And and I'm not kidding. The name of it is the apotheosis of Washington, which is to make George Washington look like a God. And right after the Civil War, This country had shattered all of its illusions of who we thought that we were. And they began to rebuild an image of this country that used religious imagery and language to try to gather people back into this belief in what the United States is. And the people, the men and women that are surrounding George Washington in this image, they're called by very many names. These are all little gods that we find in Greek and Roman uh, theology. There's one called war. There's one called commerce. There's one called marine for some reason. <laughs> Agriculture. All these different arenas of American life are turned into little gods, and they are literally painted into the ceiling of our national legislature. This is what I mean by Christian nationalism. When we conflate those ideas that God and country are basically the same thing. And this is pretty much the New Jerusalem, and God is automatically on the side of us because we're Americans. I remember several years ago discussing with somebody the Second Amendment, which is the right to bear arms. And they said in passing, they said, well, our God-given rights. And I said, hold on a second. Pause. What do you mean? God-given rights? Because what he has believed, like so many American Christians believe, is that the Constitution was inspired by God in the same way the Bible was inspired by God. You know, the two most quoted uh, pieces of, of, of writing in America are the Bible and the Constitution, and the two least read are the Bible and the Constitution. <laughs> and I had to challenge that. I'm saying, don't, like, I, I think the Constitution is a phenomenal piece of writing. It really is. You should read it. There's some good stuff in there. It's an excellent way to found a democracy. But by no means is it God-given, because that means that we cannot critique it. We cannot challenge it. We cannot make it better, which is actually the spirit of why the Constitution was written. This is what's so dangerous about Christian nationalism. It actually robs us of the place to be genuinely patriotic. 
to be proud of our country, to be proud of where we're from, because we can't question it, because to question the country is to question God. And that's why we find ourselves in the situation we're in today in so many avenues of the American church. The American flag and the Christian flag fly right next to each other, and the language and the imagery just bounces back and forth, back and forth. And it calls into question our ability to be faithful to King Jesus. And then to be the prophetic voice that speaks truth to power. So if on one side we have this idea that faith is commodified, is taken by those in power and saying belief in us is the same thing as belief in God, what we find on the other side is that faith is relativized. And we hear this in a lot of our language today in a lot of our hollow philosophies where we say, well, there's many paths up the same mountain. Everybody's basically headed in the same direction. And at the end of the day, it's just about being nice to each other. We just kind of relativize, which is this very pathetic version of tolerance. You get to believe what you want to believe. I get to believe what I want to believe. And at the end of the day, we're all fine. Just don't over-assert your beliefs. And the theologian Stanley Hauerwas says, just think about how nonsensical it is to say, Jesus is Lord, but that's just my personal opinion. How can the, the lordship, the kingship of Jesus just be an opinion? Either it's true or it's not. And so a lot of times these hollow philosophies we find in our modern culture, just find your truth. Or we say, well, I'm just living out my truth. And my truth is fine as long as it doesn't infringe upon you, and your truth is fine as long as it doesn't infringe upon me. And I get to believe whatever I want. So in one respect, we have faith that has been co-opted by the powers and principalities. And in the other, we've had it so relativized by hollow philosophies that we don't even know what we mean when we say, Jesus is Lord. Still with me? All right. Are we preaching? Is this the gospel? All right, great. Good, I'm glad. So what do we mean? What do we mean by the gospel? What do we mean by faith? What do we mean by Jesus Christ? I don't know where this year's going to lead us. I have some ideas, but we have to hold those things loosely to see wherever God leads us. But here's one thing I do know when we're looking for, like, what are the tangible measurements of success for this vision this year, which I'm usually very reticent to do that kind of work. I think pledging allegiance to King Jesus will mean that a lot of our idols will need to be smashed, okay? Whenever you put faith in something that is not King Jesus, your hollow philosophies, the powers and the principalities, your, your own flesh, your own ego, whenever you put faith in those things, they become idols, and sometimes your idol might look a whole lot like Jesus, just a little bit smaller, and he kind of agrees with everything you already believe. And you just keep him on the shelf and you worship him instead. But if you want to know where your true allegiances lie, look where you turn when the going gets tough. Who do you look to to save you? What are you reading that makes you feel better? What were you hoping was the outcome of the last election? What did you think was going to happen when it came to having a, a pandemic that was going to slow down our entire country? You see, when we're in normal space, it's very easy for us to say, yep, Jesus is Lord, I got it, woo -hoo. And then everything gets really hard, and all of our idols start to show themselves. And we need a posture of humility to come before the Lord time and again and be, God, show me, reveal to me, where, where do I have idolatrous understandings of you, of power, of who's going to save me? 
And I think that brings us to the table. You see, you and I as Christians, when we come to what we call in different traditions the Lord's table, the Holy Eucharist, Holy Communion, whatever we call it, when we come to the table, we are pledging allegiance to King Jesus. This is where what we say becomes action because we receive the gifts of King Jesus in a way that it gives us permission to step a little bit deeper into the kingdom of God and to step a little bit farther out of the empires of the world and the flesh and the enemy. So I invite you to stand with me. And before, well, before you do, reach under your seat. And again, you're going to find one of those strange little, uh, I don't know what you call them, little, little mini communions. And we're going to pledge allegiance to King Jesus together. So we're going to be using some call and response prayer that kind of prepares us to come into that place with God. And so we come to the table to pledge our allegiance to King Jesus. Let's pray. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. And together we say, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We come to your table, Father God, desiring a conversation. Into this bread and this cup, we pour all of our joys and suffering, our hunger and satisfaction, our doubts and revelations, all beauty and all frustration. May these gifts sum up the whole human experience, all our extremes offered to you for redemption in Christ Jesus. For in him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. He is before all things. And he is the head of the body, the church. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now we ask, Lord, that you would pour into this bread and this cup everything of yourself we see in your son Jesus as our eternal sustenance. Every word you speak is summed up in him and spoken to the deepest parts of the human experience by the Holy Spirit. And together, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The gifts of God for the people of God, take them in remembrance that Christ, King Jesus, died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith 
with thanksgiving. So let's take of the bread and the cup and let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.